same experience as I did. Where in the school assembly, we would all say the Lord's Prayer together, or maybe you did that in a classroom or something. And I think it must happen even outside of Kilkeel, because it seems like there's a universal pace that we say it. Our Father, pause, who art in heaven. And also we seem to use the same version of it, don't we? Whether you've got your bus pass or you're only in P2, we say trespasses, and we say things like thy kingdom come. But we just take it for face value, don't we, as children? And I don't think any line demonstrates that more clearly than hallowed be your name. For example, and I'm sure she wishes she didn't tell me this now, uh, one of my friends um, recently shared that for quite some time in primary school she prayed, Our Father who art in heaven, Halloween name, and prayed that for years. Or my favorite story, which I uh, found on the internet, was the girl that came home very confident that she had just found out what God's name was, which of course is Harold. Our Father who art in heaven, Harold be your name. I am begging you, whatever children you know this week, to teach them that God's name is not Harold. But now, I'd be fairly concerned if any of you still thought that that was God's name. But I do think when it comes to the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name might be the one which we understand the least. Is that fair to say? Maybe that's just me. I don't want to make too many assumptions. Um, And usually when we struggle with passages in the Bible, it's because we might get it with our heads, but it doesn't quite translate to our hearts. We maybe understand the concept, but we haven't quite, quite reached the point where we really back what we're saying and where we live it out fully because of that. That's the difficulty usually. But I think when it comes to this line of the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name, we actually need to do some work first on the intellectual end. We need to inform our minds first about what we're praying for before that can start to shape us. So we'll look first at what we're actually praying about and then a little bit later on we'll turn to our passage in Ezekiel to hopefully see what the outworking of that might look like. So what are we praying? And I have a number of questions for us to ask of this line to help us and get a picture of what's going on here. I find them really, really helpful personally, so hopefully someone else will find that too. So when Jesus is teaching his disciples on prayer in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, he says, Then this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. So firstly, what is our attitude? Or what is our tone as we come to this? As we come to our Father in heaven, what is the posture in which we say, hallowed be your name? Because for years I have prayed that line as an item of praise. I've essentially said, yes God, your name is hallowed. And yet if we look closely at the text there, what does it say? It's not hallowed is your name. Sure it's not. He prays hallowed be your name. This is a request If we go on to the next slide, hopefully that should be there. Um, Also, I don't know what's happening with this mic, but it's making some funny noises. You don't know either? Okay. Um, But yes, it's praying, hallowed be your name, not hallowed is your name. And so this is a request, first of all, for God to do something. But then we have to ask, what are we asking him to do? And really behind that question, what we're asking is, what on earth does hallowed mean? 
I would say if I have used the word hallowed 200 times, say, in my lifetime, about 190 of those are bound to have been in the Lord's Prayer, and then the other 10 were just at the start of this sermon. We don't use it in our everyday language, or we don't. So what does it mean? Well, it means to sanctify. Behind both of these words, hallow and sanctify, is exactly the same Greek word. And I was fairly sure that you wouldn't care what that word is, and I didn't care to pronounce it. But Jesus then, whenever he's saying for us to pray, hallowed be your name, he's saying, let your name be sanctified. Let it be treated as holy. In the Bible, when we read about God sanctifying us, we see that he is making us holy. But then whenever it goes the other way around, when we sanctify God, we're not making him holy, but rather to sanctify means that we treat him as holy. And Leviticus 22, verse 32, makes this clear. When God says... And you shall not profane my holy name, that I may be sanctified or hallowed among the people of Israel. That I may be treated holy as I really am, God says. And note then what we are requesting to be honored. We're requesting God's name to be honored. Throughout the Bible, names reveal something of character or purpose. We saw that a few weeks ago uh, when Aaron from the States was over preaching and we looked at that passage in Matthew. When we read, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And then just a few uh, verses later it says, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. These names tell something of character and purpose. And so we're praying not, the, not just that God's name at the surface level, but his very being would be honored, that people would regard him as set apart and that he would be treated as holy. And so taken together then what we know, this is a prayer of request that God himself would be honored. So three brief reasons why we pray this. Firstly, because God's name is not hallowed in our society. To pray for God's name to be honored is to acknowledge first and foremost that it isn't. Everyone hallows something, everyone sees something or someone as the most desirable or the most important thing. And then they live in light of that, don't they? You might hallow your family or your job or your image or your reputation or money. We're all liable to that and I know I am. And it's easy then to let those relationships or let those achievements or whatever it is to become the most important thing in your life. We maybe even pray for those things more than we pray, God, would your name be the one that's hallowed? And yet, if we reflect on those desires which we chase after, if we reflect on those other things which we hallow, we can pretty quickly realize that none of them are consistent like God, are they? None of them satisfy like God. None of them last forever. Our friends and our family, they maybe let us down. Our jobs can become frustrating. They maybe not just was, they maybe haven't turned out as we thought they might. Our image fades or it gets tainted by something. All of them are fragile things to set apart and hold as our number one. And yet, we have a Father in heaven a father of perfect love, of outreaching mercy, of sufficient grace, of absolute faithfulness to his word, of hope and life and joy. 
All of us choose to hallow something. And I don't know about you, but on this one, I don't want to go with where society are going. We have a Father in heaven, and so we pray this prayer as a fight against this cultural norm to push God aside. We pray it because we recognize that God's name is not hallowed in our society, and we want to see that change. Secondly, then, we pray it because God has every intention of making it happen. John shared a quote from us last week from Gary Miller, which is helpful here, and I'll read it. It says, prayer throughout the Bible is to be primarily understood as asking God to come through on what he has already promised. God is zealous for his glory. He wants this prayer to come to pass. He wants that this is his intention. He's zealous for his glory. And we see that in Isaiah chapter 48, verses 9 to 11. He says, For my own name's sake, I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you, so as not to cut you off. See, I have refined you, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. We might care about God's glory. We might care about how other people or ourselves are honoring him, and we might be disappointed that we're not honoring him as we should. But none of us care more about this than God himself. He has every intention to cause his name to be hallowed. And so we can pray it then with expectation that we will see this change. We'll see this change in ourselves and we'll see this change in the lives of others because God wants it to come to pass. That's why he asks us to pray. And thirdly then, it helps realign our priorities. Prayer is a means through which God helps bring our priorities in line with his. I find throughout the past two weeks that just praying this one line of the Lord's Prayer has really helped to do that for me. I've been more aware of the times when his name isn't being honored in my life and in the lives of others. I've been more keen to actively try and cause his name to be uh, honored, to give him the glory that he deserves and to point people but to this God who is the giver of every good gift. And absolutely, I've still fallen short in that. I always will. But I'm sharing this because God in his grace clearly wants to transform our lives to transform our hearts and to realign our priorities. So when we pray, hallowed be your name, what we're praying is our Father in heaven, please cause yourself to be honored. Would you cause yourself to be regarded as holy? Would you let people see for who you are so that they no longer disregard you? Would you cause the nations to lift your name high? Would you show your great character so that people everywhere might know you and overflow with thankful hearts for all that you are and all that you do. Hallowed be your name. Okay, so that's what it means and that's the result if you like. But what does it look like then in the process? What specifically are we asking to happen here? I watched an American football uh, game for the first time recently and I could have told you the end goal, no problem, before I went. You just score enough points to win the game. Easy, like any sport. But I did not have a clue what the process looked like to actually do that. And if I want to follow a game properly, I probably then need to see what actually happens to make the scoreboard change. 
I need to know what happens in between the scoreboard changing if I want to follow along properly. And likewise, if we want to see the outworking of this prayer in reality, it's probably helpful then to get a picture of what God is going to do to cause his name to be honored. That's not because we need to add these specifics into our prayer, but it's so that we can see the reality of this here on earth. And so then we can have those priorities realigned. If you want to turn with me then to our passage in Ezekiel, uh, chapter 36, we'll spend the rest of it uh, looking at that passage. I think it was 867 of the few Bibles, I hope. What does it look like for God's name to be hallowed? So the bigger context of this passage is that Ezekiel is in the middle of retelling the story of Israel's sin and punishment. And he's retelling it this time uh, from God's perspective. It's from God's point of view. And this is God's people. And what we see is that they have turned from him. They're no longer honoring him, and so God scatters them from the land that he's given them. But as they get scattered, they bring with them all of their dirt. God's name has been dragged through the gutter by them. And so the people around them say in verse 20, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. And then what does God say that he'll do in verses 22 to 23? It says, therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. So they have brought his name through the dirt. And we probably read those uh, verses thinking, oh boys, the fire is about to come down here. Which to be honest is what they would deserve and what we would deserve too. But instead, what God paints for us next is the most glorious picture of their restoration, of what it will look like for God to cause his name to be hallowed. It's not by this heavy hand that we might expect, but it's by forgiving sins, by replacing hearts of stone with hearts of flesh, by giving his spirit to help them walk in obedience. So have a look with me at verse 25. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. These people have been infected with sin. Sin isn't just this outward action or two, it's a complete infection. It's a turning away from God and saying, I want to do things my own way. I would rather hallow something else. And there's no point trying to treat it symptomatically because it doesn't do much. You need the full dose of antibiotic to cleanse it from your body. And God, he offers that cleansing and he offers it through his son, Jesus where God would take on human flesh and die in their place. These people, you maybe notice, they're not pleading for mercy. They should be, but they're not. It's God who takes the initiative here. And what's more astounding is that he extends this same offer to you and to me. Sinners saved purely by his grace and received as a gift. 
if we can't see him set apart and worthy of praise for that alone, then I don't really have a whole lot left to offer. Who else would do that? He is totally set apart and worthy of praise for that. And now maybe you're thinking, yes, that's an amazing offer, but, well, I just don't have enough faith for this. You say that the offer is for me, but you, you don't really understand my personality or, or my stubbornness or my cynicism or my lack of trust. I'm just too far from being a Christian. And yet, if we're following the medical analogy through, then we see something of a heart transplant happening here in verse 26. Verse 26 says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. To those who say that they're too far from being a Christian, maybe that's you or maybe that's someone that you know. And that they think that their heart is too hard, God says, I will give you a new one. A lot of Christians, including myself, didn't think, well, I'm exactly the type to become a Christian. In fact, many people thought that they were too far gone. And yet they've come to God saying, I can't do this myself. But will you forgive me? Will you help me trust? Will you give me this new heart and new spirit? And he does. Finally then, we see God causing his name to be hallowed by giving us the fuel to live for him. This new life source, the blood transfusion that we desperately need. Have a look at verses, uh, verse 27. Verse 27 says, And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. These people who are tempted to turn back uh, to the idols of the world and to chase after those are given God's own spirit to help them live for him. They have this spirit-empowered obedience. Now, do you see what is happening here? This is a beautifully Trinitarian thing which is going on. And now, before you roll your eyes and yawn and say, stop giving us any more theology, just take a minute to see this. Or at the very least, allow me to sit on it for a second, if nothing else. God, Father, Son, and Spirit is causing his name to be honored. The Father extends his grace in giving his Son, Jesus, up for us. Jesus then willingly goes to the cross to pay the price for our sins. The Father orchestrates this world that we might come to hear of this forgiveness and then removes our heart of stone to give us this heart of flesh, a heart which receives the good news of Jesus and which is washed clean by his work. And in return, he gives us his very own spirit to empower and equip us to live for him. Isn't that just a beautifully comprehensive saving and sustaining of his people? Who else is like him? Not one. He is holy and he is set apart and infinitely worthy of our praise. Thinking then of some application to finish off. When we pray this prayer, hallowed be your name, hopefully we're praying that, that it would take effect in our own lives, but also the lives around us. For ourselves, would we ask that God would continue to transform us into the likeness of Jesus, that more and more we would give God the honor that he deserves, and that this change and this, um, this obedience, it would be empowered by his spirit, that our own desires wouldn't fight against that, and that we wouldn't be 
and that we'll be people who are just more open to his leading. And pray as well that we wouldn't become checklist Christians. Have you ever done something so often that you don't even know why you do it? The example, which is a silly one, which came to my mind, was why you add vinegar to the water of your poached egg. Like, who knows why we do that? But people do. And this kind of mindless doing can just happen so easily in the church when we simply follow the motions and we forget the purpose behind it. And I think the real danger is that it's going to suck the joy out of our serving. Or worse, we'll lose the reason why we even did it in the first place. Our purpose in all these things is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. As Presbyterians, we knew that. We, our purpose is to hallow his name, and so would we pray that we'll be empowered by that. But this doesn't just have a personal aspect. It very much has this outward-looking dimension as well. People who trust in Christ, they know what it is to have this intimate Father in heaven. But as we pray the next line, hallowed be your name, we're praying that others would come and to know that too, that they'd be welcomed into that family. It's an evangelistic prayer. We're praying, God, would you cause more and more people to come to yourself? Would you receive more and more of the praise that you deserve then? And would more and more people see your goodness and your mercy and find life to the full in you? We know that you'll do this, God, because you said that you will, but help us believe it and allow us to be part of it, God. We give a lot of effort individually and as a church to help people see this grace and the love that God extends. And we do it because we have been recipients of it. But really importantly, if we see people come into faith in Christ, if we see 20 or 50 or hundreds of people come to follow Jesus in this church over the next year, would we remember that they are answers to a concert of prayers which have said, hallowed be your name. My prayer as we finish, is that this line, hallowed be your name, would realign our whole prayer life, where God's glory is our highest aim and not just our own comforts. And my prayer is that it would be the driving force, as I said, behind all of our evangelism going on, not only in this church, but across the nation. And as we see people coming to faith in Christ, I hope we see that it's because God cares enough to ask us to pray this prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So let's pray before we sing our closing item of praise. God, we are sorry for the times when we do not honor your name, when we turn from you and chase after something else like it's more worthy than you. We pray that for those of us struggling to believe, would you remove the heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh and that you would forgive our sins. God, we pray that in our own lives and in the lives of those around us, we would see answers to this prayer that you taught us. Hallowed be your name. Empower us to follow you closer and to reach out with the confidence that you will see this prayer come to pass. That's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray. Amen.